Father, we come before you this morning with that heart's desire that your will would be done in our hearts. I pray that your will would be done in the worship that the kids are having right now in their junior churches and those ministries, that they would learn, that they would grow, that if any of them aren't born again, that they would respond. We pray that your will would be done here in this room, that as we now do a Bible study, that our minds, our hearts would be open to being willing to do whatever we are challenged with that where there's needed to be conviction, that that will fall into our hearts. And we would respond by making appropriate corrections. Father, where there needs to be comfort, use your word to do that. But just minister through your spirit while we just have open minds, open hearts, wanting and with a desire to learn then to do what you have guided us through your word. So take this Bible study and help it to be profitable, help it to be impacting, Help it to make a difference in every one of our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and let's head to Acts chapter 1. For weeks and months and years I've been saying we're going to be doing a study in the book of Acts and we're finally there. I was reading a story about a gal by the name of Claire who a number of years ago she went to a garage sale. Some of you can relate to that going and she had just moved to a place where she wanted to get some furnishings for her house but cheaply and she saw that there was this coffee table end table there that she wanted to purchase but her friend who was with her said that thing won't even hold a lamp. You shouldn't buy it. Well she thought well it, it kind of fits with what I want to do so she bought the thing. They were wanting $30. She only had 25 cash so they took the 25 she took it home, she cleaned it up, and on the bottom of it she found a tag, something embossed there, that had on there the John Seymour Furniture Company and Sons, something or another that was there. And she thought, oh, this is interesting. So she tried to get information. Now this was back in the 70s, 60s. Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, so she couldn't get all that information. And so she, find, she just thought, I'll forget about it. Years passed, and here comes, close into the later 90s, uh, right around 2000, she, uh, she sees that PBS Antiques Roadshow is coming through her area. So she thought, hey, I'm done with this thing, we're moving, so I'll just take it over there and see if they think it's worth anything. And so she took the end table there, and when she got there, the guy was commenting, says, hey, you know, this company, these are some of the most sought after, the John Seymour type of furniture. There's very few of them intact. And so she's thinking, whoa, maybe my $25 purchase will be worth hundreds. And she's excited. And he says, well, actually, there's only five pieces of furniture left that even have that tag on them anymore. And she started getting even more excited. Maybe my piece of furniture will be worth tens of thousands. And he appraised it and said, your piece of furniture is worth $300,000. She decided that she would sell it instead of keeping it. She got $490,000. Now, is that turning a profit or not? Her $25 investment was a grand investment. But she didn't even know it. For years it sat there, for decades in her house, and she didn't realize it. I think that's us with the book of Acts. We don't realize what a treasure trove it is for information for our lives. It is just a book that, it's a history book. But it's also a teaching book. It is just so filled with fascinating facts. So much filled full that we're going to take an extended period of time and go through it paragraph by paragraph. Today I will get through verse 1. <laughs> so figure from there how many years we're in it. Okay. So we're just looking at verse 1 plus another text, Luke chapter 1. So you may want to put a finger there where uh, we have some hello remarks by the author. But in order to get the most out of the book, let's just take a few moments. Let's do classroom study, introducing the topic, the text, and just get ourselves set. We need to know a little bit about where it's going, why it's written, who it's written to. We, we need that information or it won't make sense to us. So if we back up, we ask a few questions about what do we know about this book. I already alluded to it that it is a history book. But in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, he makes this comment. He says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and to teach. That gives us some information that's really critical before we can really unload and, and unpack the book of Acts. It tells us that the same author sent to the same recipient a former letter, something that he's building upon. What we know from this former treatise that's, that's telling us that Acts is the second volume of a set. 
the first volume is the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is sent to the very same person, Theophilus. We'll talk about him in just a second. They are both very similar in the way that they write. You know, you can tell that certain people write a certain style. Yay, nay? So when you read Luke and you read the, God, the book of Acts, they both are higher in classical Greek. They use the bigger words. They use the more appropriate speech. They don't use as much common language. And so if you and I were putting it in modern days, we would say, okay, it's a lot of the different epistles or the gospels, they speak like our common tongue. But then when you get to Luke and, and Acts, they speak more like a professor in a college class. And so he's using very classical literature. And if you put the two together, they actually blend really well. Where Luke picks, uh, leaves off with the death of Christ and giving a command to the disciples, Acts picks right up and continues on with the resurrected Christ, what happens to him, what happens to the twelve. And when we go to the book of Acts, he makes sure that he tells us, he says, I've already written what Jesus began to do. Well, if somebody began something, what's that tell you? There's something more to come. There's more to come. And so what he's doing, he says, what I wrote you before is the beginning of the story. What I'm writing you now is more of the story. He began it in Jesus. I should be pointing it to help you out. He began it in the book of, uh, in the book of, of Luke. But I'm going to tell you what happened as he continued his work. So we need to put the two books together. And they're putting it together. Acts is going to tell us the story of the early church. Uh, just make a comparison. Where the gospel of Luke told us more about the birth and the life of Jesus Christ, we get more of the birth and the life of the early church in the book of Acts. We get a portrait of Jesus. We get a portrait of how Christians and how the early church operated once Christ was off the scene. Where we have a focusing on the works of Jesus in the book of Luke. This book, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. That shows up even in some of the more ancient manuscripts, the Acts of the Apostles. In reality, we should probably have called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's the working of the Holy Spirit, Jesus through the Spirit that he promised. We'll get into more of that next week. So you have the Gospel, Luke, talking mostly about what Jesus did with the Jews. The book of Acts opens up and tells us what he did with Jews and Gentiles mixed together. That's important for us. It tells how we tie in to Christianity. Where the Gospel of Luke was mostly dealing with Palestine, the book of Acts deals with all of the Mediterranean world, the known world at that time. So you get the history of Jesus or his story, and then you have the history of the local church given in the book of, of Acts. And when you start opening up, you're going to have so many firsts. You're going to have the first time that there's a mention of a local church being formed. The first... Uh, the church was mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 18, but this is the first time it's formed. You have the first time mention of pastors and deacons, first time there's offerings taken, first time that they start gathering on Sundays to worship. Before then, it was Sabbath day. Okay, in the book of Acts, it transitions into Sunday worship. You have the church's first business meeting. You have the first persecution of disciples, the followers of Jesus. You had Jesus die, but now you have his disciples, and you're going to have the first time what one of them is killed, and then many more afterwards. So you're going to have this first as well. You're going to have the first time that the Gentiles are ministered to them and them alone, where Peter, for instance, goes to their house. He wouldn't have done that in the book of Luke. That he wasn't prepared for that, nor were the rest of the disciples. But all of a sudden, the book of Acts, they're willing, and even Peter did it hesitatingly the first time. They're going to go and start ministering to Gentiles. Good thing they did for our sake. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten the gospel. So you're going to have the first display of these spiritual gifts, such as tongues. You're going to have the first overseas, or, or, uh, missions trips overseas. And so you have all of this going on in the first. And if you are one of those that says, okay, how do I put this book all together? You could easily do it this way. Some people suggest that take the key figures. The first 12 chapters talks mostly about Peter, the lead apostle. Then the second half of the book talks mostly about Paul, who becomes the lead apostle. Or if you take Acts chapter 1, you shall be witnesses, the words of, of the Lord commanding them to go elsewhere. Witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, to the uttermost part of the earth. Verses chapters 1 through 7, they're in Jerusalem. Then you have 8 through 12, they go to Judea and Samaria. Then the rest of the book, they're going to the uttermost parts of the earth. So you can break the book down in different ways. This is the critical thought for this morning. For you to keep this in mind, these next few thoughts. Why did they write this, this letter? 
why did the author pen this to a man called Theophilus? It is critical for us to understand what he's doing when he's writing this letter. Otherwise, it's not going to make any sense. When he was writing this, it was written at a time, I want to do the date first then the why. The date is the covering of the book starts with the events of Jesus ascending into heaven. That is approximately around 28 AD. Jesus had to be born before 4 BC because Herod dies in 4 BC. Our calendars are all wrong. Okay, with the beginning of Christ. Christ was born probably 4, 5, or 6 BC. He lives right around 33 years, 33 and a half years. So he dies right around 28 AD is roughly the time frame. So the, chapter 1 starts around 28. Chapter 28 ends right about the ending of Paul being in prison around 64 AD. So you have basically about 30, 35 years of material put into this book. He's not going to give us everything that happened in 35 years. He's going to only highlight the major events or changes that happened to the church and to the people at that point. Now, the reason that most people have concluded it's right around 64 AD that it stops is because two events happened that aren't mentioned in this book. One event, in 64 AD, there was this crazy king, emperor, who burns Rome. Anybody remember who he is? Okay, who's he blaming on? the Christians, and it starts major persecution. That is not mentioned in the book, but it was mentioned in a lot of other contemporary writings that if, because it so severely affected the Christians. The other event that's not mentioned is what I put up first. In 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. And Jerusalem is a key part of all the, what's happening through the book of Acts because they're always returning in some way or direction to Jerusalem in ministry. But they never mention it. So most all scholars conclude it had to be written before those two dates. And that's about the time that Paul was, had his first imprisonment where in chapter 28 he's under house arrest, not really in a jail, but only in house arrest. So we highlight the events. And the reason that he's going to write certain events is because, well, first of all, he's writing, the major reason he writes the books is he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Anybody know what Theophilus means? This is, this is important to understand who it might go to. Lover of God. Theos is God. Phileo is good friend or lover. You know, nearby city that talks about love. Phila, city of brotherly shove. Yes, okay. Okay, so you have the city of brotherly love. He's writing to this man, and the debate is this. And uh, the debate is, is this a man or is it to all of you who love God? And so I, I'm going to fall on the side where, hey man, th this is an individual. Because of the way he talks to him, the way he writes to him, um, you know, it, it seems like it's more than just general Christians because of the phrasing. Because what he does in chapter 1 of Luke, if you just flip there, chapter 1 of Luke in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, he says, I'm writing unto you, Theophilus. He uses a phrase, anybody got it? Luke chapter 1. He says something and he calls Theophilus something. Anybody have it? Most, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus. That phrase shows up in Luke chapter 1 and in the book of Acts three times. Most excellent. Every time it's a title given to a person. Not people in general. It's given to a specific person. Every time it shows up, that specific person happens to be a, a Roman official, a king or a ruler of some sort. So it seems to be that this is a title to somebody who's in prominent position government-wise, but this person has already become a believer as we go back to Luke chapter 1 where he makes the comment that I'm writing to the things that we, the writer and the author, have believed. And so he's writing to a believer who happens to be named Theophilus. It wasn't a rare name. It was a common name as being a lover or friend of God, small g or big g. And so he's writing to this fellow. Now what's interesting we don't know is what typically happened in that time is that people who were authors did not write to sell books. Today we write to make, to make money. They didn't do that back then. Back then, if you wanted a book written, you who had the money, you would hire somebody to write the book. 
And so the, uh, the, typically what would happen is people who were authors, they were, they were um, employed by, they were contracted by to write something by their benefactor. And the benefactor could do it for whatever reasons. And so if this is following the typical scenario of the ancient Near East and the first generation of, of Christianity, Luke has been employed or maybe he is even a servant or a friend of or an acquaintance. I say Luke, we'll get to that in a second. The author is somehow employed by, obligated to, aware of Theophilus who is funding him who is paying for him to do this research because I want the information. And God uses that to be able to spread the information to us as well. Again, we don't know if that's 100% accurate, but that is the tendency and putting together what we do know about what's going on. And so he's writing to this Theophilus fellow to help Theophilus to get to know more about Jesus Christ. The other reason it could be writing to Theophilus, which fits the book well, is right about this time, I mentioned in 64 AD, Nero is nuts. Well, he's been nuts before then. But he burns down Rome. There's been a growing um, concern in the, in the heads of Rome, growing concern about Christianity that's been spreading. And so they don't know what to do with it. And so they're, they're, they're having trials. It's the beginning of persecution era. After 64 AD, after era, uh, Nero, there will be 10 imperial persecutions that will go up into the 300s. Major persecutions. But at this time... Christianity is kind of like the novel thing out there. And they're still trying to wade through. Is this good? Is this bad? And what's happening is what in the early church, as you see in the book of Acts, arrests are taking place. People are getting upset. The people who are basically attacking Christianity and getting the Christians arrested are who? Think through the book of Acts. Which group of people is so anti-Christianity that they lie about them? The Jews, they want to get rid of the, the group of Christianity because the story goes out and makes who look bad. That makes the Jews look really bad. And so they're against this and they're saying things. And so they started rumors in the Roman Empire. Throughout the empire, they started telling things about the Christians that started getting picked up by the rulers and that started getting more and more and more concerned. They lied about the Christians. They would tell stories like this. They would say that, um, you know, they have these services where they come and they eat flesh and blood. And they even say in the ceremony, this is the, this is my blood, drink ye all of it. This is my, my body. And they said these people are cannibals. When they're worshiping and they do it in secret because they are taking little kids and they're killing the kids and they're eating the kids. So it became very common, uh, spread through the early Roman Empire, that Christians were killing kids. Don't send your kid to that church because they'll kill them. And then these people are incestuous, they have orgies, they talk about being brothers and sisters with everybody and very close and it's just gross. And then on top of it, they're saying there's no difference between rich and poor, between masters and slaves. They're undermining our culture. They're saying everybody should have equality totally. There should be wealth should be spread equally. There shouldn't be any difference between male and female. So does it sound like today? Okay. Some of the, but they're blaming it on the Christians. And they're saying that then on top of it, they're preaching about your kingdom come, your kingdom come. What are they doing? They're usurping the Roman authority. They're talking about setting up a new kingdom. And so all these rumors got the officials really concerned. And they started ramping up these different persecutions, these arrests, these investigations. Paul was a victim of that. In chapters 24, 20, all the way to 28, he gets arrested and they want to hear more about him and it's such a corrupt system. You'll bribe us, we'll let you go. If not, we're going to hold you to trial. We want to learn more about what is this Christianity? Why? We've got to report to Rome what you people really are about. So in the book of Acts... What does the writer do in every occasion where there's some type of unrest? He pictures the Christians as not starting it, as trying to quell it, 
as trying to be peaceful, as trying to be, to be supportive of the government. And so he's making it very clear in the book as he presents it that the Christians are not rebellious, that the Christians are being respectful to the government. And so the book of Acts is a defense book a historical defense trying to slow down some of the persecution. Beyond that, the book is just really good for you and I. Hey, does it ever happen to you that you think you're the only one Christian in this workplace? You're the only believer who really is struggling at, you know, the school or whatever, and I just feel so all alone. Or all of a sudden you, you, you know, hear of others and that encourages, or this. You come to church, you get the missionaries coming through, and the missionaries come and they tell you stories about how God answered prayer. And you get, whew, God can answer their prayer, God can answer my prayer, and you get all fired up about it. Or you hear testimonies of other people about, hey, God is working in my co-worker's heart. God, this teenager friend of mine, I've been witnessing to them, and this has been happening. And that just kind of lights a fire under you to say, hey, I can do the same thing. Well, that's what part of Acts is about. Acts is telling you stories to other believers, telling them you're not alone in the city of Philippi. There are other believers in other towns. You're not the only ones who, who are struggling. God is at work, and we want to share with you how God worked in this town, in this town. How it's fascinating. I put up two letters uh, from missionaries. One of them is about one of our missionaries who's working, and he had a project. He needed to get some things written, some uh, pamphlets produced, because the government where they're working is saying that we will open up all the public schools and you can come into these hundreds of classrooms, distribute your Christian literature. So they put together some Christian literature and they needed to get it printed. We invested some monies in that out of our sacrificial Sunday. I think it was like $10,000 that we invested. The printer said, you know, to get this all done properly, it'll be like $150,000. And they didn't have the money. And they told the investor, or they told the publishers what they were doing and what opportunity there was. You know what the investor, did, uh, the publisher did? He took our $10,000 and printed it all and ate the other 140,000. And we go, oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's encouraging. You know, that's something that God, we see those little hand of God. Well, that's what he's doing with this book. He's telling you about, hey, here's the power of God. Here's the way God is working. And it just, it just empowers you and encourages you to pray, to give out the gospel. So that's one of the reasons for the book. Another one of the reasons for the book is very simple, is if you end up with the book of, uh, let's take Theophilus. Theophilus reads the gospel, uh, the gospel of Luke, and that's all he knows. He doesn't know anything else. And all of a sudden, he's told to go to a church. And he walks into a church, and they're talking about things that he's never heard about. Number one, he doesn't even know what a church is. It's not in the gospel. Uh, why are the Gentiles here? Uh, what is this baptism thing that's going on? Who is this Holy Spirit? There's not enough information for the early Christians with just the Gospel of Luke. Somebody has to fill in the gaps. And somebody has to give information. So what the book of Acts does, it tells us if we were living in 100 AD and we got saved, we were going to go to a church someplace, but we only had the Gospel of Luke. We wouldn't know how this all works. You know, so why should we read a letter written to the Philippians? Who are they? Well, the gospel, I mean, the book of Acts, it fills in all the gaps. It tells how the church began. It tells how the gospel got from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. It tells what happened to the apostles. The last time we read about them in the book of Luke, they were standing on a mountain. And Jesus was going in the air. Where are they? What happened to them? These were important dudes. And all of a sudden you don't have that information. How did the Gentiles get there? And so it gives us a lot of information and important information that would say, hey, listen, the book of Thessalonians is worth reading. Why? Well, who are the Thessalonians? The book of Acts tells us. It tells us about the Romans. It tells us about the Galatians. It tells us all those different tidbits of information that is really, really critical. But most of all, it's a manual. It's a manual for us today because it answers questions that the Gospels didn't deal with. It answers questions that, even though it's not a theological book, it gives us answers to like, what is God's program for today? Is God's program orphanages? Is God's program schools? Is God pro God's program medical missions? Is God's program what? Okay, and we go through the book of, and it tells us in this book that Jesus said, I will build my 
church and the gates of hell not prevail against it. So what do they go out and start everywhere they go? Churches. So it tells us the main program that God, primary program God is working with and gives us that information. It tells us what our purpose is. Is our purpose as a church to feed the hungry? Well, that's something we can do, but is that our purpose? Is our ultimate purpose to have times of getting together and fun? What is our purpose? What are we, what are we primarily to do? It tells us really important how we should organize ourselves. Because do different churches do things differently? Do some churches have popes? Yes or no? Do some people, some churches, are they totally independent? Yes. Well, which one's right? The book of Acts reveals to us what is the organization for a church. Should there be a pope and a synod and different things? Should somebody tell you what you are supposed to do as a local church, what are you supposed to do with this guy? Hire him, fire him, whatever. Does somebody else fund what you do? So the book of Acts tells us how we're supposed to operate, even financially, in all aspects. It is amazing. It tells us what is real missions. What is, and this, living in this era of this day, anything can be called missions anymore. Is missions, you know, what is biblical missions? What should we be funding when it comes to biblical missions? And so it's really, really important. It tells us about the Holy Spirit, which is critical. It tells us how he's working. And it's important because as we go through the book, there are some people who would say this. If it shows up in Acts, it's for today. There is a movement that is really, really focusing on this more than any other movement. There's a movement that started off, and it, it was an early church, then it faded, and then in the 1930s it kind of revived, and it's called the Charismatic Splash Pentecostal Movement. And it puts a great emphasis on a couple things. And a lot of them are believers. I don't mean to decry that. But they put a great emphasis on such things as healings, as tongues, as miracle workers. And, all, and, it's just, and the argument for it is, well, it was in the book of Acts, therefore it's for today. And that's, that's a legitimate discussion. We're going to have that discussion. But I want you to think this through. If that's the way we operate, if it's in the book of Acts, period, therefore we should do it, then what does that do with some other things? Shouldn't we be still observing the Jewish feast days? What about temple oaths? They did it in the book of Acts. They did Sabbaths for a period of time until they shifted to Sundays. What about this? When we determine leadership, let's just, we have elections. We've got the pictures out there. Let's just cast dice or whatever it is, cast lots, and they're going to be, that's how we're going to determine. They did that in the first part of Acts. They didn't do it in the latter part, but they did it there. Well, let's do this. Acts says they gathered every day of the week. Well, if you're going to say because they did it in the book of Acts, we should do it today, then where are you? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I can tell you where I'm at, but I can, where are you? Okay. So if we're going to grab something and say, well, this is our, this is how we should operate completely. Everything in Acts we should do, such as the miracles, then therefore we should be gathering every day of the week. What about this one? Everybody sold what they had and they shared a common chest. Personally, I'd like to ask, those guys who really promote the miracle working stuff on TV, would you sell all your planes and your houses and your TVs and give it all away? Because that's what happened in the book of Acts. They had a common treasury and everybody gave in to it. If we're going to do what shows up in the book of Acts, then if you lie about your dedication, you die. Isn't that what happened in the book of Acts? In one of the chapters? Somebody came and said, we love Jesus so much that we gave everything we sold this for to Jesus. And they were lying. And what did God do? The husband and wife both, they have funerals for the two of them. So if we're going to the book of Acts, this one I love. He preached until midnight. Amen? Let's do what the book of Acts says. I'm preaching to men, and if you fall out of that balcony, yeah, we'll raise you up. Okay? That happened in the book of Acts. 
So what I'm getting at is one, and to me this is so critical, I know I'm going long on it, but this is so important to just help us to understand what we're going to study the next weeks and months, years, decades, um, is this concept that it is a manual. It is an important manual, but it is not the last word on everything. Actually, if you're going to uh, go through the book of Acts properly, we understand it's a transition time. It's taking us from what Jesus began and he is organizing it through the book of Acts. Certain things that happen at the beginning have, will have changed by the end. Does that happen in families? Yes. In businesses? Yes. And so it's a transition. It's a growing book. It's a time of growth. And what happens is where they explain more of the actual applications of a lot of this is when you get into the epistles. The epistles will really give you the final word on a lot of this practice. It'll do it with pastors, church government. It'll do it with the gifts. It'll do it with the working of the Holy Spirit. It'll, tell, it'll explain in detail how baptism should be done, though it is, it is done a little bit different in the book of Acts. It'll, it'll just work its way all the way through. And so when we study the book of Acts, we understand it isn't the last word, but it is a reliable, informative book that it isn't a doctrinal treatise, but it's giving us a manual so we can lay it next to the epistles and we can do right, what's right. So we're going to approach it that way with that study. And where we start right now is, is the idea of who wrote it. Who wrote the book of Acts? How do you know Luke wrote it? It never tells us he wrote it. What'd you say? I, t I told you a few minutes ago, yeah, that, well, that's not reliable. Okay. <laughs> it never says, it never says Luke wrote it. Not in the gospel and not in Acts. It never, he, never, he never names himself that way. What is interesting what he does is Luke, he, what do you know about him? He's a physician. He's a doctor. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us. Okay, Paul gives us some information. Now, the, the author is accepted from the very, very early church. From about 125 on, it was commonly understood and accepted it was by Luke. And some of the earliest writers are saying, Luke's the guy, Luke's the guy. They were handing it down. Not everything is recorded. And they're handing it down with reliable people. Even some of, remember, John is living close to that time period. And so they're giving the information. This is the one author that was never debated. Of all the different authorships of the Gospels and Epistles, except for where Paul names himself, this is one of those rare books in the New Testament. Nobody's debated. It's Luke. Because of the same, uh, the same person writing, writes the same person, writes in the same way, all those different things. But he is mentioned in the New Testament three different occasions. His name comes up. He is called a fellow worker. He is called the beloved physician. He has also said when Paul is in his final jail term and thinking he's about to die, I've finished course, I've run the race, he says only Luke is with me. So he knows a close companion with Paul. And when he was saved... We don't know. We have no idea. We don't know how he heard the gospel. And we, we just don't know. We know from Luke chapter 1, he says, we believed. You and I, Theophilus, we have believed. So that's all we know about him. When did he and Paul meet? We don't know. We have no idea. Okay. But here's an interesting tidbit from history. If you were back in that day and you were going to be a doctor, you did not go to school on your own. Okay, you, you, weren't, you didn't say, I'm going to start a career as a doctor. That didn't happen. You were funded by, you were a slave to, you were contracted by somebody who paid for you to go to school and you were their doctor for whoever they wanted you to doctor. You didn't put out your own shingle. You worked for somebody else. And most of the doctors in that early first century, they were slaves that showed promise and ability. So they were sent to a school. One of three places in the early world of the Mediterranean at the time that Acts is occurring, there's one of three places you would go to school. You would either go to Alexandria, Athens, or Tarsus. Does anybody recognize Tarsus? Saul of... Did they meet there? We don't know. We don't know. But there's that historical tie that is a possibility. We just don't know when they met. But we do know Acts 16, verse 10. 
Acts 16.10, there's something that happens in that verse that prior to the previous, it's never been seen in the book. He keeps on writing and he writes about Peter. He talks about Barnabas. He writes about Paul. He uses they, them. All of a sudden, Acts 16, verse 10, he shifts from they to them to us and we. So we know that at this point when Paul gets that Macedonian vision, Luke is with him. And Luke then travels with him and it shows up several times beyond that, us and we, us and we, us and we. And even to the point that Paul is in prison, Luke is there with him. And so we have all these tidbits and this doctor of medicine, it, it, he's, he shows his medical abilities. He's very detail-oriented. For instance, when he's writing about the eye, the, uh, the, you know, putting the rich man getting into heaven, it's like putting in thread through an eye of a needle type of idea. He uses the difference, uh, different needle. He uses the scalpel type needle in terminology. When he describes the boy who is falling down and because of the demon possession, he uses convulsive words, medical terms. Luke is so detailed, he has 30 different instances in the gospel that nobody else records. So he's given to this detail orientation and so he contains in his, a lot of his stuff, he's, he's doing all of this, he's working and he could have been, as I already said, working under, under Theophilus. Here's what's conjecture. Could he have been employed by Theophilus? Theophilus becomes a believer and says, I appreciate what Paul has done. You go and travel with Paul and I'll, I'll let you go and travel because Paul needs a physician and Paul did need a physician. We read about Paul where he has a thorn in the flesh. We read about him with what large letters I'm writing, suffering lots of ailments. So this Luke who is doing this, what's interesting, he writes 28% of the New Testament and yet he never mentions himself. What's that tell you about him? What kind of person? What would you say? He's a very humble person. He's very humble. He doesn't draw attention just in the, oh, by the way, oh, this is me. Everybody make sure you know my title. He doesn't do that. Just him. What else do we know about him? Let me finish up with just a couple feeble thoughts here. Okay, in introduction. I know this about Luke from Acts 1.1 and Luke chapter 1. Luke is very interested in learning more and more about Jesus Christ. He is so interested in learning about Jesus that he says in, in Acts 1, the former treatise I have read, written unto you of all that Jesus began to do. Let's go back to Luke 1 and watch how he says, I was so interested, here's what I did. In Luke chapter 1, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth the order of the declaration of those things which are most assuredly believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which were from the beginning, the eyewitnesses, the ministers or servants of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning or first, to write to you in order, in chronological order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. What does that teach me about Luke? He wanted to learn. When did he come to know Christ? I don't know. But he was so interested in learning about Jesus Christ, he would listen to the eyewitnesses repeatedly, which was reported by the eyewitnesses and by the other servants. He put himself in places where others could teach him about Christ. As well, it says that I have a more excellent understanding. The word phrasing literally means I have followed after closely or I have investigated. The original language implies very strongly that he did research. He did study. He sought out others to give him more and more information. This guy clearly wants to learn more about Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough for him that here he was after I've already learned some of the things about the life of Christ, that's enough. He embarks on learning more and writes and studies for the book of Acts. You're a believer. You are sitting here on a Sunday morning. How genuine are you in wanting to learn more about Christ? Are you so genuine that you will study? You will investigate? You will take time beyond just these few minutes to get yourself under the teaching, the, lead, the training, Bible study, get some books, do some work to learn more about Jesus Christ and what he's doing and how he's operated. 
Are you one who reads the Word of God more than just what we're doing right here? And I've only alluded to two different sections of Scripture, and there's so much. But how diligent are you in personally being interested in learning more about Christ? Where you would make the effort. There's a commercial that some of you don't even remember this, but some of you will. Back in the 70s, 80s, there was a commercial by a firm by the name of E.F. Hutton. Do you remember their commercials? Here's a scene. They're in a restaurant, a busy, busy restaurant. Two guys are sitting at a table and they're talking. And as they're talking, and there's all this commotion and chaos going out. They all of a sudden, they started and they zoom in, first of all, these two guys. And he's one saying, well, my investor says, and they're zooming out. And as he's talking, he says, my investor is E.F. Hutton. Do you remember what happens to the rest of the restaurant? Everybody stops and everybody, and then what do they say? When E.F. Hutton speaks, see, you do know this one, okay? When Jesus speaks, do you listen? Do you listen to his words? I was reading about a pastor who said that he would, was looking for an illustration. He remembered this story that it was one of his textbooks some 20 years ago when he was in college. And he went back and he's trying to look for this one story and some facts that he thought were really important for this upcoming message. And when he pulled out the book and he's saying, yeah, yeah, here it is. As he was paging through, all of a sudden a letter fell out. A letter that he had put in this book apparently while he was in class in college one day because they were still doing letters back then. And so he had this letter and he opened it up and it was from his deceased grandmother who had written him, alive obviously, back when he was in college and wrote this letter of encouragement to him. He said that letter made his week to hear from his grandmother once again. Somebody who he loved, somebody who wrote him personally this encouraging letter, he said that letter did not stay in that book. Unfortunately, many people with God's love letter, they leave it on the shelf. Or maybe they grab it out as they go out the door on Sunday morning. But outside of that, they leave it somewhere. Is that you? Oh, I hope not. I hope you're like the, the writer of Luke, of Acts. I hope you have a desire to be personally interested in the Word of God, that you want to study it, that you want to learn about it, that you want to take the time. And if, you, and if you say that I'm boring, that's great. That's fine. That's okay. At least get where you can learn. And study the Word of God and learn the Word of God and get under the Word of God a lot. So Luke is one that shows an interest in doing that. There's a guy, true story, it's, and I don't know what the outcome of this is. This is from like 220, 222. Okay, the last I saw was, was a couple of years ago. Then he was a Muslim, gets converted, and this fellow, Riza Karaka, he has to flee because it's a death sentence to be a believer. There in the area of, was it, Iran? Yeah, that he has to flee. So he flees to Great Britain and he gets there and he applies for refugee status. But they don't know if he's faking. They don't know if he's just saying he's a Christian. So the judge at the hearing decides, here's how we're going to test if he's a Christian. I'm going to give you a list of 150 questions based on the Bible. You answer them all accurate. Because a real Christian would know these. If some judge gave you a quiz of 150 questions about the Bible would you pass? You say, well, it all depends on what the question... A general questions of the Bible. Do you know God's word to prove you are a real Christian where somebody was doubting? By the way, just as a tidbit, he failed. He missed one. He didn't get the apostle right that betrayed Jesus. You know it was... He put James by accident. And so they're redoing his hearings. You would think 149 out of 150 was pretty good. But still, how would you fare? He was personally involved in sharing what he learned about Jesus. Here he is, knowing that he has a friend by the name of Theophilus, who knows some things, who's a believer. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to investigate some more scripture so I can learn it and help my friend, my employer, my contact to learn it. When's the last time you took a class, you sat to learn to take it to somebody else, personally, that you were going to get involved with Bible study so that you could pass it on, that you didn't keep it for yourself? That takes time, that takes effort. But would you take the time and the effort to teach somebody else? 
When's the last time that you said, I will sit down and do a Bible study with some people? I will bring some teens into my home and I will gather them and I will do a Bible study with them to help them. Or a young couple or some other young believer. He has a zeal to train others, to give them some truth. Even though he's not the, the greatest scholar and he's not the lead missionary, he has a burden to pass on and disciple others, do you? He has a burden to reach the lost. He says, as we endeavor to go into Macedonia, where God, he says, has called us. God has called you to reach the lost. What are you doing about it? What are efforts are you making? Who are you discipling right now? Who are you training? And you say, but my life is so busy. Then you're too busy because you're not fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission is investing in other people to learn the truth for eternity. Can we do that in the busyness of our life? Yes, if we have our priorities right. This man did it. He was also extremely careful in what he taught and what he put down. When he was teaching, when he was saying, we know he investigated. We know that he was careful to write in order. He wanted to be specific. He didn't want to be silly. He put great emphasis on being accurate with the Word of God. Boy, accuracy is so important. There's a few years ago, there's a, a lady who all of a sudden she saw money, some $700,000 being deposited in her checking account in New York City. There was 13 different wire transfers that totaled 700000 What it was is the UN was collecting money from different countries to do some type of, you know, rescue a certain animal. And these countries were sending, and three of the countries had one number wrong. And so they were going into her personal account, not into the UN account. And there's three different transfers. How they missed it over a period of four months, I don't know. But she got the money. And she thought, thank you, Jesus. So she spent it. She started getting this money and getting herself out of debt and investing it. And after four months, they caught up with where this money went to. And it's still in the courts, whether she has to pay it all back or not. That one little figure, that was a huge mistake. I'll give you a worse mistake. Grand Rapids in Minnesota. The SWAT team got together, like they did with us a couple years ago. They asked if they could use our building and do a practice run. You know, and just some people pretended to be the terrorists. Some people here pretended to be the captives. And the police came in and they were supposed to storm into the room, take away the terrorists and rescue the people. They were going to do this in the classroom. And so they had the people, all the volunteers, they were in the classroom, they had the terrorists that were there, and the police went into the building, rushed in, broke open the doors, and rushed into the classrooms. The school building where it was set up was right here, where there was only the volunteers. Next door was a real school operating real classes with real students and teachers. That's where they went in. Ouch. One of the teachers said... I didn't know what was happening. They didn't identify themselves. They just came in and we thought we were all going to die. That's an oops. That's a major mistake. On that level is getting it wrong when you're teaching the Word of God or sharing the Word of God. Do you, do, do you know Luke was so careful? He talks about the infallible proofs. We'll talk about them next week. The point being, you've got to be careful with the Word of God. You've got to be careful you're not giving your opinions, but you're giving truth. You've got to be careful that you study, that you understand it. You've got to be careful that, that it's not my viewpoint or my opinion about something. It's what does the Word of God say? But if I don't know, here's what it could be, but leave it at that. We don't know. What about making sure you have the passages interpreted right? Can you take a verse out of context? Oh, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Study the Bible. Understand the Bible. Make sure we're giving Bible more than just personal experience or anecdotal ideas. Make sure that what we're doing is we're giving out the Word of God. And sometimes it's hard to give out the Word of God. Sometimes when you're standing before people who are looking at you, with like some of you right now, okay, it's intimidating. And you say, I don't want to say that. What if I say it and they get really ticked? But if it's the Word of God, you speak the Word of God. It isn't fun telling somebody, the Bible says there is a real hell and you're going to go there if you're not saved. With compassion and kindness, tell them the truth. 
Don't, don't fudge on the Word of God. Be accurate. Be very careful that you are accurate with the Word of God. And then what I know about Luke is this. He is marvelously effective. I mean, what he, what he did for Theophilus, we don't know exactly how it plays out. But I do know what it did historically. The Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, they made an impact. Have they made an impact in our lives? They have, I'm sure, hoping they will in the days ahead. You know, when we give what abilities and talents we have to the Lord, it's amazing what he can do. If you just give some ability, maybe you're a doctor, maybe you're, you're dealing cars, maybe you're fixing the cars, maybe you're on a candy factory line, maybe you're just whatever. You're a salesperson of some sort. Maybe you're a business manager. Maybe you, you do the groceries. I don't know. Can God use you? The answer is yes. If you're willing to say, God, here, true stories. When we grew up in Minnesota, we got saved and we were told we were not supposed to study the Bible. Our priest told us it is a sin for you to study the Bible any further. You can't read it. Well, that same thing happened to a gal that was overseas that one of our missionaries told me about. That the priest came to her and said, you cannot study the Bible any longer. And she responded with just, she said this, Mr. Priest, a little while ago my brother was an idler, a gambler, a drunkard. He made such noise in the house nobody could stay in it. Since he began reading the Bible that a friend gave to him, he works with industry. He goes no longer to the taverns. He no longer gambles. He brings money home to our old mom. And our life at home is quiet and delightful. How come it's a bad book if it produces such good results? The Bible can make a difference, but it won't if you don't give it out. We can condemn the priest for saying don't read it, but are we any better if we don't share it? Let God use you, like he did Luke, in a way that could have a profound impact. By just doing something, your abilities, your talents, your skills, your blogging, do something of giving out the Word of God and watch God use you. You're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, we're going to close in prayer. But I invite you afterwards to come and talk with me. I'll stay right here at the front. And we'll gladly show you from the Word of God how you can know that you have eternal life. You're a believer. What will you do this week to get into the Word of God, to give out the Word of God? Luke's a good example. We'll study more about him in the days ahead. But don't falter this week. Father, thank you for these folk. Thank you for their attentiveness. Thank you for the simplicity of just learning a little bit about this guy. Help us to live like we were living in that New Testament era with a desire to serve Jesus Christ in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks, folk. Have a wonderful day. See you this evening.